Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. It feels pretty obvious that no one today would think it's okay for white people to put on black or brown face makeup. Yet in both high-profile instances and lesser-known ones, such displays keep cropping up. Cheryl Thompson is an associate professor of performance at Toronto Metropolitan University. She's currently writing a book about the history of blackface in Canada, and she joins us now from Midtown in the provincial capital to give us some insight on where this comes from and why it has persisted. Uh, Cheryl Thompson, great to see you again. Thanks for coming on to TVO tonight. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me. Not at all. Glad to have you here. Let's start with the broader question. When did this practice of white people putting on so-called blackface begin in North America? Right. So it really starts in the early 19th century. So we're talking about the 1810s, but it's really in the 1820s, early 1830s, where you have professional people uh, writing songs and caricature, uh, blackface caricature. And in particular, we really locate the origin of this to a someone named Thomas Dartmouth Daddy Rice or T.D. Rice, who essentially created a character in 1831-32 named Jim Crow. And Jim Crow is the first character who's wearing blackface, sort of dancing out a kind of um, mimic dance of an enslaved person. And he hits the stage and tours the Atlantic world. And did it become a hit right away? Yes. <laughs> it's called instant. Back then, 19th century instant hit means it took about five years. Huh. <laughs> right? It didn't happen instantaneously. But yes, by the early 1840s, that Daddy Rice is then mimicked by another group named the Virginia Minstrels, who essentially take his original idea as an individual person and they turn it into a troupe. So now it's like a collective of people in blackface. And then eventually through the 1850s, it's an ensemble. There's three parts to the show and it becomes essentially the beginning of an entertainment industry. And it's always white people putting on the makeup to pretend to be black people. Until after the U.S. Civil War. (laughs) Then it changes. How about Canada? When did it come to Canada? Immediately. So T.D. Rice invents this Jim Crow character in 1831 too. By 1836, we have documented evidence in newspapers of a Jim Crow character performing in Ontario, at least. Can't confirm across the rest of the country. So is that T.D. Um, Rice or is that somebody else pretending to be Jim Crow? Again, I can't confirm that, but we're talking about within a few years, it's in the country. Hmm. And they came to be known as minstrel shows. And I wonder if you could tell me how Uh, How did the Canadian Railroad, what role did it play in minstrel shows reaching out across the country? Well, first to the name. So just quickly to the name, the name is completely random. (laughs) I think everyone really needs to understand that. There was a family who were called the Tyrolese minstrel family, and they were from Switzerland. They came to America in the early 1840s, and they just liked the name, so they took the name. So the the name minstrel kind of relates to a performer, but it really doesn't have any innate meaning. As for the railroad, the reality is, is that if we think about how we travel today, 
in terms of how things get here. You need a transportation system in order for people to come to town. In order for large productions to move across borders and space and place, you need to have a transportation system to move them. So once the railroad started to build out, especially in Ontario in the 1850s and 60s, that's kind of the beginning of, oh, now that we have a means to bring in large sets, large pieces of machinery and large, just generally construction type materials, we can build theaters, we can now build large, larger sets. So you kind of have the beginning of the infrastructure, infrastructure to support an entertainment uh, industry. And was the motivation behind it always to, to pejoratively or nefariously caricature black people? Yes. I mean, it's just unequivocal. There, there is really no debating it. From the moment that T.D. Rice puts on blackface, he's actually mimicking a black person that he saw earlier in the day. So the origins of the genre is always steeped in black caricature. As the genre develops through the decades, the narratives expand. There's narratives about slavery. There's narratives about it. Uh, freedom-seeking African-Americans who end up in the North. There's minstrel shows about that. So literally, it didn't really matter what the show was. The topic of the performance was the Black body. And, uh, I mean, obviously, slavery was in effect in the United States and, and to a lesser extent in Canada at the time. So obviously, Black people would not have been in a position to rise up and object to this. But do you find evidence through history that they did anyway? Oh, yeah, no, that's actually not true. Absolutely. As early as the 1840s, you have black community in Toronto saying, please stop allowing. At that time, it wasn't minstrel shows, but it was the minstrel char character who would tour as part of the circus. So they were saying to city council, please stop allowing these minstrel circus acts to come to town. It's causing a terror. There's violence. We feel threatened. And they did this consecutively for like three years, 1840, 41, and 42. By 43, they just kind of gave up because the city council just was not listening to them. And by 1849, we have the first theater, at least in the city of Toronto, the Royal Lyceum. Professional blackface is front and center in that theater's productions. So the city didn't listen. And, you know, after that, I think they kind of felt like, what's the point? Because nobody's going to listen to us. Hmm. People who know the name Calixa Lavallee will know that uh, that is the author of O Canada, and uh, in French, of course, initially. And um, there is an association with blackface there as well. What is that? Well, I mean, Lavallee left Quebec and toured in the American minstrel circuit through the 1850s and 60s. And he did so because he was a very talented musician. He played piano, he could write songs, he, and, and he did all that in blackface as part of various minstrel troops in the U.S. And so I always think to myself, you know, it's, it's just an ironic thing that he also would have been the person to then write the Canadian national anthem. Hmm. Does it make you wonder whether, I don't know, should, I mean, should we change the words to the national anthem? Should we fit, get a different national anthem? What do you think? I don't know. It, you, you know Canada and their national anthems, <laughs> or countries <laughs> in, in general. I, I, I don't know. I don't have the answer. But what I do know is that it's important to understand the roots 
of everything that we hold dear are probably steeped in some really complicated history of race, of power, of nationalism, and also a group of people at a certain time in history who were disenfranchised, i.e. Black and Indigenous people who didn't have rights to vote, didn't have rights of citizenship, couldn't do certain things. A lot of the things that we still hold dear in our culture were created during those times. So for me, it's kind of having a wider scope awareness of maybe not jumping to right, let's change it, but at least let's have the conversation about where these things actually come from. Hmm. Okay, well, let's follow up on that because uh, you tell me whether we need to make the distinction between the white so-called minstrel shows that were nefariously caricaturing black people and the black minstrel shows. Was there a significant difference? And if so, what was it? Um, the only difference is that the white actor in the white minstrel show was freely choosing to wear the burnt cork, as they would have called it, makeup, right? Like the blackface makeup. The black actor wearing blackface in the 19th century had to. It was actually rule. You cannot perform on stage as a black actor in a minstrel show unless you're wearing blackface. That's your options. Until the end of the 19th century, where things start to change through various changes that happen in the North American context. But for at least 30 years, if you want to act and you're a Black person, that's your option. And I always say that so people can put it into context and understand, you know, as much as it would have been so freeing to be an actor to go on stage, imagine having to put on the prison of a caricature in order to do so. I imagine that when you teach this to some of your students, they are shocked. Should they be? Yes, <laughs> shocked, mm -hmm. appalled. Uh, can't believe they've never heard this before. Uh, can't believe how steeped um, this is kind of in everything. Like there's certain elements from the minstrel show that I'm describing. You, you still hear debated in contemporary culture about white artists seemingly uh, caricaturing black artists or the issue of race and cultural appropriation. All of those themes that still circulate in our culture. When I teach this, the students are like, oh my goodness, now I know where it came from. Like they understand that it didn't just show up in their lifetime. This has kind of been something that has been going on for centuries. And what I always challenge them to think about is how can we end this? <laughs> like, what is the solution to where Black actors, Black singers, Black dancers can actually show up whole and be seen as whole people, not through the lens of a caricature? Well, at a certain point, these minstrel shows became less and less popular. When did that start to happen? Uh, well, Popular has to be in kind of air quotes sure. because it, it, you know, it it left the entertainment industries really in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, right? So the civil rights movement, the NAACP in the United States had actually been protesting against a lot of racial stereotypes since the 1930s. Finally, in the 1960s, it kind of got wiped from films, generally speaking. Weirdly enough, it makes a resurgence in the early 2000s. Suddenly there were movies with blackface characters. It's very strange. But in terms of leaving the culture, you know, 
as someone who studies this, it's never left the culture. It's just gone into communities. So it's it shows up at the community event. It shows up on Halloween at a private party. It shows up now in the contemporary, often on university campuses where people don't know that they're being recorded. So it, it, it's kind of moved into a secret culture from what would have been in mo until the mid 20th century, a public culture. Do you have a theory as to why uh, we Canadians tend to think of this as an American phenomenon, despite the fact that you've pointed out all the evidence that it was an issue for us here too. Because in Canada, we sort of lack um, a reflexive understanding about race. So instead of, you know, if there's a conversation about race, it, it, it always seems to be externalized, right? It's always about something that happened or something that we saw. It's never about, well, what about you? And, and your history, and maybe some of the things that you've done in your past. So because we don't personalize it, and it's externalized as someone else, somewhere else, something else, it's when these things happen, that's exactly how it gets handled. It gets handled, oh, that was just an incident. And oh, I'm sure they didn't mean it. We're always meant to understand the intention of the person who's been found doing this, right? To say, understand they didn't mean it. Whereas in the United States, they just erase all that and say it's racist because it is. Hmm. So we should worry a lot less about the intention of the person doing it and just try to get across the notion that this is not acceptable anymore. Yes? <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. 100%. Got it. Now you are, I gather, in the process of not only writing a book about this subject, but also working on a documentary on it as well. And... I guess I want to know what got you interested in this subject in the first place. Man, I tell you, if someone had told me 10 years ago that this would be what I would be doing, I would be like, why? Why would I go down this road? <laughs> I never in a, a million years ever thought I would be studying this. And it really came out of my first book, which was Beauty in a Box, which is about Black beauty culture in Canada. And because I was in the archive, to be honest with you, I just kept stumbling upon blackface. I was shocked. I had no awareness. I was completely naive about what I would find looking in archives. And so when I kept stumbling upon it, I sort of made a decision like I'm finding way too much blackface in the archive to just ignore it. And so, you know, someone said this to, this, this to me recently. They're like, it seems like this topic kind of chose you. Like you you didn't really choose it. And I, and I think I have to agree with that. Do you know whether any other books about blackface or documentaries about the practice of blackface have been done in Canada previous to your efforts? No, I mean, I'm going to say it. I, I think I'm the first. I'm going to hmm. be the first in, in both in both realms uh, to tackle this topic. There obviously the book is written engaging with the literature. There's been lots of Canadians who have written about blackface in articles. Stephen Johnson, who I work with at the University of Toronto, he's written articles done book collections, but an actual like full length manuscript that is trying to tell the story of Canada through the lens of blackface. Yeah, this my book when it comes out will be the first. Hmm. Why do you suppose nobody prior to you has taken this on? Oh, I mean, first of all, the topic, <laughs> you know, let's just say when I first started studying blackface, people kind of cringed when they heard what I was studying. Hmm. So there's that part of it because it innately addresses race. Like you can't not study blackface and not talk about race. And, you know, 
many people have already established this and we had this conversation earlier in Canada talking about race is always a challenge so you can imagine now especially in theater and performance studies I'm not the first person to find blackface in the archive as a theater and performance studies scholar I've read books where they talk about it. They actually tell you the, this show came to town. They talk about blackface, but they don't interrogate race. And I think that's why it has never really been addressed in a full length book, because you have to address race and you have to think about power and citizenship and freedom. All these concepts are wrapped up in the minstrel show. It's not just a white person putting on blackface. Hmm. Professor Thompson, we can't really talk about this without talking about what happened in this country a few years ago. So you're going to forgive me for going down this path here. I know at the time so many people were mortified when the pictures came out of Justin Trudeau in blackface. But I wonder with the advantage now of uh, some hindsight, whether or not you think it's good that that happened because it really did kickstart a national conversation and got people thinking about the topic in a way they might not have had he not done that? What do you think? Oh, yes. I mean, I think it put me, it kind of put me in, in the map, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> because I was doing the work before, long before this. But when that happened, I sort of became embroiled in a lot of media around the response. So that's good. But to be very honest with you, one of the things that I'm still disappointed about that situation is that he never explained the why. He only said, "I'm." yeah, he admitted it's racist. Yes, I did this. But he didn't explain why. And I think that's where I'm still like intrigued by not just him, but this is why I'm writing a book about this topic. Because if you don't understand the why, how are you ever going to eradicate it? It's one thing to apologize and say you're sorry and admit something is racist, but when you explain why you did it, right, then you get to a sense of, oh, maybe, you know, Justin Trudeau wasn't the only one, actually. Maybe it was a community thing. Maybe he has people in his family who's done. Then you understand the wider breadth of the issue. And I say that because one of the things that we like to do when there's these really um, sensational moments, we like to make it about one person. So it's like one person behaving badly, as opposed to that one person being a mirror onto our culture and a much deeper issue that's in the culture that is not being addressed. Well, maybe we should take advantage of this opportunity right now Again, for the people watching us who, who, I mean, let's just say it, who don't get why this is such a bad thing, maybe you should explain to them why this is considered so heretical. Because when the white person puts on blackface, they change. They immediately change. They act wilder. They say things they wouldn't normally say. So in their mind, they're equating blackness with a kind of just frivolity, of just like looseness, being silly, not to be taken seriously. That's what blackface registers. A black person is not to be taken seriously. And so when you put that on and then you don't interrogate why you're doing it and the fact that maybe on some psychic level, you actually believe that, that black people are not to be taken seriously. That's why blackface is not only racist, but it's dangerous because now I'm in the workplace with you. <laughs> Maybe you're my manager, right? Maybe I have to work alongside you. And I have no idea that in your mind, you don't take me as a serious person. So this is a teachable moment in the history of our country. What do you hope comes from it? 
I hope that black people finally um, get seen as human, right? The truth is at the core of racism is a dehumanization of the other. You just don't see them as you see yourself. And if we're ever gonna heal, right, and move forward, the truth is you have to start to see people exactly as you see yourself. So imagine, it's almost like putting yourself in the shoes of another. And in order to do that, you really got to think to yourself, hmm, what's my power position here, <laughs> right? So a lot of this is understanding who you are in relation to other people, and then jumping out of yourself and saying, who, how do they see you? in relation to how you see them. And that last part is really difficult. So I say to people who are watching, just try to develop a little bit more empathy and imagine the world through someone else's eyes. And when you start to do that, often people are really shocked at things that they didn't notice until they like turn that switch on in their mind. When do you think your book and or documentary will be out? Oh, 24. 24 is the year. Okay. Next year. <laughs> I'm excited. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Until then, point us to a resource if people want to know more about this subject. What can they look to right now? Um, they can go to my website, drsherylthompson.com. I also created a resource for this very topic. It's called breck.ca. So B-R-E-C.ca. If you go to breck.ca, I've literally broken this down into the history, given examples from coast to coast. There's a newspaper catalog that you can access. And I've tried through research to make this topic something that people don't run from because they just think it's racist. Yes, it's racist, but it's also so steeped in our culture. So you kind of have to address both. And so if you go to breck.ca, drsherylthompson.com, there's lots of resources there. And what does Breck stand for, B-R-E-C? So that's Blackface Resistance Entertainment in Canada. Okay, good. I'm so glad we had you on the program tonight, Cheryl Thompson. We appreciate you joining us. You're an Associate Professor of Performance at Toronto Metropolitan University, and we wish you well with both the documentary and your book in 24. Thank you. Thank you so much. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.